There's a lot of wickedness in this world. And it doesn't get worse. It doesn't get more worse than what we see this morning from a man after God's own heart. 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, in the spring of the year, this note sets the context. It's a new year, a new day, a new year, and Israel was still at war. In the spring of the new year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. David is still at war with the Ammonites. This war with the Ammonites began in chapter 10, and this war with the Ammonites will continue on until chapter 12. And this war with the Ammonites unites these chapters together. It's one big story. And the story began in chapter 10 with David being loyal to the foreigners in the land. David being loyal to his neighbors, sought to be a good neighbor, but his neighbors were not so good. His neighbors received his graciousness with war. And they attacked David. And David was a good neighbor. But they surrounded him. Overmatched and overwhelmed David. But God is good. And God delivered David. And the war continues. Verse 1 says, But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, many take this as the turning point of the story, the turning point of the text. If David would have went out, if David would have gone out with the kings, if he would have done duty, if he would have busied himself with devotion to the things of the Lord and to his duty, then he wouldn't have fallen off the roof. The point being, idle hands are the devil's workshop. But can you fence off temptation? You should. The Proverbs are clear. Turn your foot away from evil. Fence off temptation, lest you be seduced by its lies and you fall. What we cannot do, however, is fence off sin. No amount of law can keep you from breaking the law. According to Paul, more law only makes more opportunity for transgression. Romans 5:20 says, "Now that the law came, now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to make you more a sinner. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, the problem, the problem is not the outside of the cup. The problem is the heart. So don't think you're safe just because you got fences. You don't fence sin. You kill it. You kill sin. And the sword that conquers, the sword that divides and devours evil is the gospel. The gospel crucifies sin. 
The gospel makes new. The gospel mends the brokenhearted. It heals the disease. The gospel is the power of God unto sanctification. So don't ever let your guard down. Fence off temptation. Don't ever let your guard down and trust the gospel. Verse 2, it happened. Words are powerful. These are some powerful words. It happened. Now, previously, David was an obedient king. He was a loyal servant of the Torah. A good neighbor, a godly man, faithful neighbor. neighbor. But, but something happened here. Verse 2 says it happened. And what really happened here is the text. The text changes. In chapter 10, the text, the story moved really quickly. It was just bare facts. Chapter 10, just bare facts. The the text just really moves at a rapid pace. David attempted loyalty. The Ammonites responded with war. Israel got outflanked, outnumbered, but they won. There's no how. How did they win? There's no detail. Just the bare facts. It was bad, but David won, and the narrator leaves out all the juicy bits. How he overcame, how he conquered. It's just, he was overmatched, outflanked, he won. He was faithful, and God was good. That's the moral of the story. Really quick, really easy. easy. David was a good neighbor, and God was good. But now it happened. And the picture becomes more vivid. And the narrator slows down the story. He actually slows down and he starts to fill in the spaces with color. He starts to fill in the spaces with all this detail. More color. Almost too much color. A little bit TMI, if you know what I mean, as we will see. Verse 2. Look at the color. It happened. Now the details. Late afternoon. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch, he was walking on the roof of the king's house. You can see all the details, almost like you're there. It's almost like you're on the roof watching and looking, and you might want to close your eyes for this next part. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, hanging out on your sturdy flat roof was very common very common to hang out on your flat roof in the cool of the afternoon in a world without AC and TVs in the den. Now, it wasn't common to be bathing out in the open like this. This is not common. And the details are kind of lost in translation. Hebrews, the Hebrew language uses three words to describe her beauty. The English just says very beautiful, but it's three words. In the Hebrew, she wasn't just beautiful. She wasn't just beautiful. She was like my wife, exceedingly radiant, one of a kind beauty. Sorry, I just scored a little brownie point from the pulpit. And uh, I think we can let that one pass. And what was this dazzlingly beautiful married woman doing bathing on a rooftop? Perhaps she wanted 
to capture David's interest. Did David fall to her wicked device? The narrator doesn't say that. You see, the focus isn't really on Bathsheba. The focus isn't even the focus isn't her motivation, and the focus really isn't even her beauty. The focus is David. David is the main actor. He's the actor. He's the one moving throughout the whole narrative. He saw, it says, and he acts, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And then David learned a very important bit of detail, a little important bit of intel, if you will. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? She was a married woman. And so his neighborly duty at that point in time was to close the blinds. To lower the shades, put up a fence, lest he be seduced, put up a wall, protect her innocence. But the fact that he inquired as he did and acted on it suggests that adultery had already taken place. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's a lot of Davids in this room. Fence off temptation, but don't think you're safe from the heart. The man of God's own choosing, a man after God's own heart, a loving neighbor in chapter 10, is now fallen. And it just happened. It just happened. You must know, dear Christian, that you are not safe from grievous sins like this. You are not safe. This is you. And if you think to yourself, oh no, I would never do that, then you are worse, for you are a fool. And you don't know your own heart. And sin will surprise you and overwhelm you. But if you know that you are this wretched man, then you know yourself, you know your heart, you know what to fence off. You know where to put fences. And most importantly, you can find the gospel as your only comfort in life and in death. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. David went from being a loyal and good neighbor to violating his neighbor's wife and honor. He went from being a faithful neighbor to an adulterer. And then we hear this parenthetical, like I said, lots of detail, TMI. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. This is the narrator's way of saying she was, she was, what's the word, uh, ovulating, potentially ovulating. But there's also irony in here. For while she's purifying herself from her uncleanliness, she cannot protect herself from David's impurity. And by his own power and with his prestige, he takes the woman. He got what he wanted. Verse 4. Then she returned to her house. Now notice all the verbs in the text. She returned. 
She returned doesn't express faithfulness. There's no loyalty or goodness. All of these verbs, none of these verbs are good. Nor the verbs David saw, sent, inquired, took, and laid. There's no hesed in any of these verbs. There was hesed in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, not much color, not much detail, but lots of steadfast love, lots of goodness and faithfulness. You wanted to read the text. You couldn't move your eyes from the text. But now we have all this detail and all this color, and you want to look away because there's nothing good going on in this text, nothing worthy of praise, nothing to set your mind to. It's just just using and throwing out. It's just abuse. And so much detail, and we barely get Bathsheba's name. We barely get her name rather than just a mere passing of her name to explain her identity. It's just David sent, took, and laid, and the narrator says, the woman. And then she conceived. And she returned, and the woman conceived. And the narrator in the text treats her like an object. The narrator in the text, if you look closely, he's just treating her like an object. He's not treating her like a daughter of Israel, a child of God, an image bearer of God. No, he treats her like an object because the narrator is trying to draw you in. He's subtly drawing you in into the wickedness of David. It is David who is treating this woman of God this image bearer, this daughter of Israel, it is David treating her like an object. There's no love, no hesed, just wickedness. He's the man. He's the one treating his neighbor's wife, a child of God, as an object for a sinful appetite. David used his power and privilege to use a daughter of Israel in Uriah's wife. He used and threw her out. There's nothing more despicable. We have a name for this kind of person on the streets that I dare not repeat in worship. And it gets worse. So far, Bathsheba's been a silent actor, just an instrument of David's lust, but now she speaks for the first time, and her lines are only limited in the Hebrew for two words, three words in the English. I am pregnant. Now we're introduced to a silent antagonist in the womb of Bathsheba, a silent antagonist against David. He's been had. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, and this so, this adverb so, is very telling. David wasn't about to be caught. He sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. This would be almost comical if it wasn't tragedy, if it wasn't such tragedy. Because we know from chapter 23 that Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. Actually, we know from chapter 23 he was one of the 30. He's Delta Force. And you don't pull special operations off the field to come and ask, hey, how's it going? David knew how it was going. He had runners for this. We're going to see later on. He knows exactly what's going on in the war. No, this is just cover up. 
Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wash your feet is a, is a code word for uh, go down and enjoy your wife's domestic hospitality, if you will. Go down and wash your feet. And then I love how David, he's, he sends him home with, you know, he prepares a date night for him. And Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Perhaps, I'm thinking, you know, this is probably good food and fine wine. And David's giving him a date night. But there's one problem. Verse 9. The problem is Uriah. He's a good man. Solid man. The best kind of man. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord. And did not go down to his house. When David. And they told David. Uriah did not go down to his house. David sent, said to Uriah. Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And then here's, here's, here's this solid man. He's, a, he's now the man after God's own heart. When you read this, you're like, here's the man after God's own heart. It's, a, it's not even... We'll see in a minute. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my, na- my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah is the best kind of man. Religious, devoted, loyal, and duty-bound. And like his wife, he only gets one line in the text, but a very important line. In his expression, in his confession, he expresses devotion and confesses to be loyal. He's a good man. Good man. And then just in case you forget who this man is, right? Remember, details, the narrator has told us three times who this man is. Uriah the Hittite, foreigner. Now a foreigner is the man after God's own heart. The foreigner is the good neighbor. And David, the man of God, the man of God's own choosing, is the wicked, evil neighbor. The tables have turned from chapter 10 to chapter 11. And David wasn't going to let Uriah's faithfulness upset his unfaithfulness. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also until tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day until the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. You see, David's in control. He's still abusing. He's still using. Made him drunk. But Uriah is still good, man. Uriah is still a solid man. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Nothing would make Uriah break his vow. He made an oath to David. He would not break it. It's the best kind of guy. This is the kind of man that you young men want to find and surround yourself with, and you young men want to be this man, man. Loyal and faithful and good. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And I cannot think of anything more, anything eviler, eviler than making Uriah carry his own death warrant. It's disgusting. I can't think of an eviler act in scripture, to be honest with you. 
You see, David couldn't control Uriah's principles. He couldn't control who he was, a good man. But he could control his life. He still had control, just like he had control over Bathsheba. Just like he did with his wife, he used his power to kill Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband. And I cannot think of a more dishonorable action or despicable deed in the Bible. And friend, you are no better. I am no better. You are the man. I am the man. And Joab followed orders, and Uriah died. Then we get the news that Joab caused other important men to die. Probably, more than likely, from his own military blunder. Probably something worthy of a court marshalling. But he used David's sin for his cover-up also. So David tries to cover up. Now Joab's covering up his blunder. He had David's sin, and so he said to the messenger, Hey, when you go and tell David about the news... If the king's anger rises, because of my, you know, military blunder as general, if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? That's the problem. Why did you go so near the city to fight? Then you say, yes, but Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so the messenger followed orders and David heard and David waxed eloquently and encouraged Joab. Even verse 25, David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you. And here we see David's poetic, you know, abilities. For the sword devours now one and now another. He waxes eloquent. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So he encourages Joab. It's disgusting. Pure evil. And it gets worse. It gets worse? It gets worse. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. In verse 27. And when the morning was over, the morning, the lament was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. David brought her to his house by the right of Goel. He brought her into his house claiming the right as a royal kinsman redeemer. He used God's law to cover up his wickedness. He used the word of God to hide his shame. And not only that, he set up a pretext that made him look like the hero, made him look like the noble man and the righteous king. I'll take this poor daughter of Israel under my arms. It's utterly disgusting. And how does it feel to see evil get away with it? How does it feel to see evil get away with it? When you read the paper and you, you hear that the rapist got a slap on the wrist or the murderer gets, got off on a technicality or you hear about Putin destroying the Ukraine with hardly anything from NATO and then you read and you hear about innocent children dying. How does that make you feel? 
Anger? Good. You want justice? Good. Because Christian, justice will always be served. Verse 12. But the thing that David done had displeased the Lord. This has been an evil chapter with no sight of God until now. An evil chapter with no sight of God until the very end of the chapter. And that, my friends, is a perfect picture of reality. It is appointed for man once. It is appointed for man to live, to die, and after this death, the judgment. No sin will go unpunished. And there will be justice for God is good. And the Lord gets the last word in this evil chapter because the Lord always gets the last word on evil. For the Lord our God is holy, holy, holy. Therefore, there is no safe place on earth. No place to hide from God's justice. No fence will protect you from his eternal wrath. You see, the law will not protect you. The kingdom of God is not safe in the hands of sinners. The kingdom of God, the people of God in Israel's day were not safe in the hands of David. You are safe only in the true king of kings who like Uriah in this text is, is the only true and righteous man. You see, it was Christ who was devoted, his whole life devoted, devoted even to the point of death, loyal to the cross, picked up his cross and carried it out of faithfulness, goodness. And the Lord put him forward as a propitiation, the just for the unjust, propitiation, a big word, propitiation, children, because the parents all know what the word means. Propitiation means that Christ satisfied justice on the cross. He satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's hunger for death and punishment. God's eternal hatred of sin were poured out on the cross. And the cross satisfied justice because you, dear friend, are David. Worthy of hell. But by faith in Christ, you are righteous instead. And we are saved from our sins in Christ Jesus who rules with grace and mercy. We are saved from this evil world with Christ who rules with justice and righteousness. So build your fences. Build them. Protect yourself from temptation. But trust the gospel. That means not if you sin, but when you sin. David was not immune from this wickedness. Neither are you. And he was a man after God's own heart. And we know eventually that he repented of his sins and he trusted the gospel. And Paul writes in Romans 5.20, Now 
that the law came in to increase the trespass. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Trusting the gospel means you believe Trusting the gospel means you believe that your sin is only an opportunity for more grace. That's what trusting the gospel means. It means your sin is an opportunity. You believe that your sin is an opportunity to thank God for such a deliverance. Your sin is a chance to know Your sin is a chance to know no more condemnation. Your sin is a chance to hear, a time to hear, I will never leave or forsake you. Your sin is a chance, a moment, an opportunity to feel God's eternal love. That's what trusting the gospel means. And I do not doubt But thankfully and joyfully believe. It's a moment to feel the eternal love of God that we might respond with the only words we have. The words of Psalm 51. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's a chance for gratitude. Trusting the gospel is the chance to turn from sin. It's the power to turn from sin, to kill it. And seek to do good in Zion. Because the kingdom of God is safe only in the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.